You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky, episode 45, and I am joined today by Dr. Susan Sherrod. Uh, she is a senior, certified senior ecologist, a professional wetland scientist, and a certified ecological restoration practitioner. And she works as a senior ecologist for Biohabitats, um, an organization out of Colorado, but you do work all over the country, maybe all over the world. So welcome, Susan, and thank you for being on. Thanks, um, Nice to be here. Yeah, we're going to talk about um, ecological restoration. But before we get into that, can you kind of give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into this work, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, if, if, if it can be done in a, in a nutshell, I'd be glad to. I, um, I have an undergrad degree in biology, and at the time I didn't know if that would lead me to med school or more environmental work. And, um, and surprise, I wound up doing taking the environmental track. Um, I took a little time between uh, undergrad and grad school, and then... Um, wound up joining the program at CU Boulder in their environmental biology program. And that's where I got my graduate degree. Um, so um, there, my, my professional work was interrupted by having kids, uh, zero regrets, not necessarily recommended, but um, you know, fabulous time being with the, with the little ones. And then when I um, got back into the workforce, I started by doing volunteer work. And that was a great way to network and um, get to know people in the local uh, restoration and conservation community, which led me to biohabitats. Yeah, that's always, um, I, I always tell people, if you can volunteer, do it as much as you can so that you, you build those networks, because that is a great way to kind of get your right. face out there and get them to know you. So. And, and to this day, I, I teach at CU Denver, and I um, thankfully get to stay in touch with a lot of my students and when they're looking for work, I, you know, it's not always what they want to hear, but I do tell them you have to get out and volunteer because it's best way to get boots on the ground experience plus um, network and, and it's, um, that's really important. Yeah, it's good to hear for those that are looking to work in the field or yeah. people like myself who yeah. need the reminder that are in yeah. school. So. Right. <laughs> um, well, great. So you've, you've done a little bit of everything, it sounds like. So, so tell us about what you're doing now, I guess, and, and the kind of work that Biohabitats does, I guess, and what ecological restoration is. Sure. Okay. So Biohabitats, um, we do ecological restoration, which I know you and I are going to talk about more. We also do conservation planning and what we call regenerative design. And the company is about uh, a third each, um, the technical staff anyway, being engineers, um, planners, and scientists. And, um, so, and we all work collaboratively and, um, and uh, put in a teamwork format to, to pursue our projects. Um, ecological restoration, you know, the, the definition that was developed by the Society for Ecological Restoration, I actually took some notes before you and I met, um, and I should, I, this should roll off my tongue because I've been in the field for so long, but I had to look it up anyway. Um, ecological restoration is assisting the recovery of an ecosystem that has been degraded, damaged, or destroyed 
Um, and so that is the the operating definition. And I personally just think of it uh, as, as um, um, improving the ecological function of a habitat um, at the end of the day. And you can measure that in different ways, what that ecological function looks like. Okay. Yeah. And and you, so you said that there's a variety of different um, roles at, at the organization you play, you work at that uh, play into to making that happen, I guess. So it's not just like one type of scientist does it. It's it's a team that has to. Exactly. Kind of exactly. And a great example is some of the work we've done on rivers, um, Colorado Front Range. For those of you that don't know the state, we have uh, the, the mountains and the plains meet along um, a, a north-south uh, uh, boundary, really, and that's called the Front Range. And there are a number of rivers that, that um, drain the mountains that, that, um, that then join the South Platte or the Arkansas. <clears throat> and um, we've done a fair bit of restoration work on some of those rivers, and those are perfect examples of, of many brains coming together. So we oftentimes have an uh, engineer on the team, and we'll have a fluvial geomorphologist on the team, landscape architect, a GIS specialist, an ecologist, that would be my role. Um, and those projects don't get done without all of our, of our um, contributions. So uh, what, I guess, what is the process if, if you identify a site that needs to be restored and you guys mm -hmm. come in, kind of, can you walk us through um, what that looks like, what needs to be done? I, I know it'll vary from site to site, but I guess what's your initial assessment? Right. So broadly speaking, and of course it's going to, like you said, it's going to vary from site to site, but broadly speaking, uh, first um, task is to identify the goals of the client. You know what? What do we want to wind up with? And um, budget is an important piece of that. So you know, how much room do we have um, to uh, um, to how how close can we get to pie in the sky? You know, what what's the ideal, and how close can we get to that? <clears throat> um, and so then we'll start by doing a site assessment and um, evaluating what condition the site is in based on uh, the tools that we have to work with. And then we come together and we'll come up with a concept. And um, it might be um, ambitious or it might be um, modest. Uh, and again, that's sort of trained by what we understand the client's um, goals are as well as what kind of uh, financial and, you know, community supports an important piece of that too. Sometimes we need to reach out to the community and find out, you know, what's, what's the, uh, what's the political landscape like? And, um, and within those opportunities as, and constraints, then we'll come up with a design and oftentimes there are stages to the design. Uh, there might be like a 30% followed by a 60% percent design and then a, a final and, and that that gets divvied up in different ways according to different projects when everybody agrees to a design then we we execute and it might involve earthwork or it might involve um uh, you know weed control um oftentimes i'd say 90 percent of the time revegetation is an element of, of a restoration project um, so again, that's a very, very general framework of a restoration project. Okay. 
So what are some of the reasons um, you might need to restore a site? Is it, you know, human caused? Um, we destroyed, you know, we dumped a lot of stuff and killed everything. Or yep. is it things overgrow or kind of maybe a combination of, of everything? Anything? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, great question. And so one, um, one thing that we're dealing with um, in Colorado is not... Um, uh, exceptional in, in this case, but there are a lot of natural disturbances happening everywhere. Um, so fires are uh, a natural disturbance that, that we have to recover from, flooding, um, and, and we deal with both of those natural disturbances here in Colorado and then um, other, other geographies have different natural disturbances that they need to recover from. Oftentimes these disturbances are compounded by um, the human presence, uh, which may or may not include um, development um, or, or management history. So if we take the case of fire, for example, um, oftentimes the fires in Colorado are more catastrophic than they would have been, say, a couple of centuries ago, because we have this history of fire suppression um, that has allowed fuels to build up. <coughs> Excuse me. The fuel load to build up, and once you have a high fuel load, then um, the the fires burn hotter, and the, and with the higher temperatures, that gets into burning soil organic matter, and so that's that's a degree of disturbance that um, that is kind of a new territory um, for the West, just because we have the these high fuel loads in the forests. Um, went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but anyway, some of the restoration needs are dictated by um, this intersection of natural disasters with the human management history. And then also we have uh, just development that's been uh, stressing our ecosystems. In the case of some of the, the rivers, uh, they've been channelized or straightened um, and, and there might have been uh, development that have um, raised the banks of a river. So instead of having a nice broad floodplain, the, the banks are relatively steep and narrow, limiting the amount of space that water can travel through. Um, so uh, development um, is, is a, an element that sometimes there's an opportunity to restore uh, a habitat. Even with nearby development, weeds are a big issue uh, in invasive species. And sometimes a restoration project is focused on simply removing invasive species. Mm. Um, let's see, mining, you know, uh, we, we're talking a lot about um, uh, transferring our, our fossil fueled cars to electric vehicles. And uh, from a carbon standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's going to entail more mining of precious earth metals. So, um, you know, hopefully there are restoration um, visions incorporated into some of those operations. So, um, yeah, nothing and has, uh, no solution to the climate crisis is without some consequence, right? There's going to be. Yeah, yeah, probably. So. Right. And on that point with the climate crisis, um, the, the warming oceans are causing the coral bleaching and the acidification is um, a byproduct of higher carbon dioxide and that is causing um, a breakdown of cal calcareous shells in corals. So 
the yeah climate change is is um is causing a great need for restoration in the oceans too. So that's kind of a short list of a of a potentially very long one for you know why we need restoration in the first place. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of jumping ahead, I think, but uh, yeah. since we're talking about it, you know, this restoration has the potential to sequester a lot of carbon, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. the soil, the trees that you plant, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about how yeah. that can positively impact, you know, the sure, <laughs> or, yeah. or reverse the trends we're seeing? Yeah, well, on the matter of carbon, there are a number of tools that um, that can be used to, to mitigate climate change as opposed to adapt to climate change. And yeah, carbon storage is a big, um, is a big piece of, of our, uh, you know, a big tool in our toolbox, if you will. And we can apply that to different habitats. So um, planting trees seems like a pretty familiar concept, but um, we need to look at our soils because soils are a huge repository of carbon and um, they store more carbon depending, uh, they store you know, different quantities of carbon depending on the habitat you're looking at. So wetlands store vast amounts of carbon um, because the decomposition rates of materials are a little slower in wetlands. And so the, the, carbon, built, the carbon that adds to a wetland builds up over time. And in that I'm including peatlands. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's a lot of those Sorry? A lot of bogs. Yeah, <laughs> bogs right. peat in Ireland and England. That's pretty cool. Exactly. And I don't know if you've done any searches on um, peatland conservation and restoration groups, but it's a pretty active um, territory for, for um, you know, uh, restoration work is, you know, restore our peatlands or save our so peatlands. And um, yeah, from a carbon storage standpoint, there's almost no beating it, but also prairie soils. Prairie soils are very, very deep. Uh, because you know the the root masses of plants go so deep in the prairies, and um, and uh, so we we need to use all of these different habitats and diversify um, our carbon carbon storage tools mm -hmm. in order to maximize carbon storage as a climate change um, uh, mitigation approach. Yeah, it's amazing how we're trying to think of all these new technologies to solve this issue, but nature has given us yep. the best and the easiest, really. I mean, if we yep. just actually listen to her and, and implement these things, you know, who would think, oh, just don't till the land, just plant some more plants. And, right. you know, doing simple things can actually have a big difference in um, keeping the carbon in, in the soil or in the plant, in the ground and not releasing more and <laughs> Exactly, and it's not that these soils have to be do not touch. We can still use them, and I'm thinking of like regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. which is designed in order to you know keep and um, even build carbon in the soils. And and so you know we we can still use these areas. They don't have to be um, they don't have to be uh, uh, you know unapproachable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so cool that you are you basically helping the earth do what it does best and um, just identifying, you know, what needs to be re-implemented and restored, I guess. Um, it seems seems very rewarding. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. And, um, you know, it's kind of one habitat at a time. The, the um, climate change. Um, oh stress, if you will, is, is a real thing. And I think we're seeing it more and more 
um, not only in our communities, but in our clientele. And um, I, I think uh, instead of despairing, we need to see this as an opportunity to work together and, and, and you know, come together as a team and work on it because uh, no single one of us is going to do it all. Right. Yeah. And we know what to do. So yeah, if we have yeah. people, more people working on it, uh, it, it's not as overwhelming. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and from a community standpoint, it's such a huge opportunity too. you know, having a common goal, regardless of um, other differences. It's, it's very unifying, I think. So are your clients typically governments or businesses or kind of a combination? And are they are they hiring you guys because they have to like, you know, meet a standard or just because they, they want to do the right thing? Is it, you know, what, what yeah. do you, I guess... It's, it's all it's all of those things and and um, you know variety of clientele and variety of motives but we do have um, a number of clients that that represent um, government you know whether whether large or more local um, we also work with development companies that want to have a um, a zero carbon footprint or a fully sustainable development you know um, one example is um, in South San Francisco, and I think I better not use client names just because I don't know if I have permission to, but, um, you know, they want to have a completely sustainable community, and uh, we're consulting, and we know that there's sea level rise in the area, and we also are working on a um, contaminated site, so we have lots of goals with this one project, and it's also on the order of seven or 800 acres, so it's it's big. Um but we we know how to do this, and and um, even though it's a development, um, we're go we have the opportunity to improve habitat for endangered butterflies that are nearby, and um, to restore some wetlands. So that you know, back to the carbon story there. And from the standpoint of sea level rise, it's an opportunity to um, build up the coastal wetlands like tidal tidal marshes and seagrasses which are going to be instrumental in protecting these land masses from encroaching uh, tides so yeah. that's a neat opportunity um, and then uh, we also have other clients that are um, you know they're developing and and they're they're definitely in real estate but they do have an ethic um, motivated by sustainability and habitat and and they see themselves as leaders and they they want to set the standard for for developing responsibly okay well that's yeah. encouraging to know that there are developers and businesses out there uh -huh. that are looking to do the right thing by nature because um, mm -hmm. i think all we hear are the horror stories sometimes so right exactly yeah and i i don't i don't know how the numbers balance but yes they're the the uh Ethically, I shouldn't. I don't want to imply that there are those that are unethical, but the the broad-minded um, uh, considerations are are definitely out there. So, if I'm um, a consumer looking to buy a house or use a developer to build, you know, a building, um, is there like a certification or just a specific yeah. set of standards I can look for? Yeah, yeah. So um, we do a lot of work with. Um, it's, it's the Green Building Council, and they um, oversee the LEED process, L-E-E-D, leadership, and, and oh, I, I'm going to botch the acronym, but the, the LEED um, 
certification method yeah, that does give different tiers of, of recognition and um, sustainability ratings, but that really is the gold standard by which um, buildings can be built and, and meet uh, sustainability criteria. Since, since I'm an ecologist, um, I don't advise on that personally. We do have people in the company that do, but I do work on projects that are um, centered around a lead development and I might advise on the open space, for example. And, okay. and how to you know create a, a restored open space that support that's consistent with with these um, uh, not only sustainable ethics or uh, yeah that's okay <laughs> I'm, I'm shying away from using the word ethic um, <laughs> um, but also con consistent with the, the the native habitat and and being respectful of the landscape mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. yeah, we have an episode on lead, uh, geez, probably last year. So if anybody's interested in learning more about that uh, or, you know, just Google it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information, but yeah, that's a great program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, so can we talk, I guess, a little bit about some of your projects? I know you yeah. focus on kind of river restoration um, projects, correct? Well, I, I have a fair bit of experience on that in Colorado um, and um, I wouldn't say that's an exclusive focus, but we have done a lot of river restoration. Um, I was hired by Biohabitats right after the catastrophic floods of 2013. And so um, there was a lot of opportunity to do post um, disturbance work like that. So, um, uh, you know, circumstances came together and I'm glad to, I'm glad to tell you more about that. Yeah, I guess what are, um you know, what, what does that consist of or what are some of the special considerations that might, okay. you know, you might have to take when you're doing work on, on river areas? Okay, so I mentioned earlier that, um, that sometimes the, the rivers are, are built up mm -hmm. um, and channelized. So it's nice if there can be a broad floodplain um, for, you know, uh, first of all, so the river can move a little bit because they're not intended to be, uh, you know, they're not designed to be um, static, stationary um, uh, features. But also um, with, with fluctuating flows, there's always going to be a high flow, uh, especially following snow melt, which, you know, that starts to happen around June or so and we see the high waters here. Um, there needs to be room to hold that those volumes of water and those volumes of water carry a lot of energy with them. So if the channel is confined and constrained, suddenly you have a lot of volume with a lot of energy going through a, a restricted space, you know, think of like a hose and, um, and there's nowhere for the, the volume or the energy to go. And that's when we have, um, uh, you know, there might be, a structure taken out or some uh, uh, erosion that causes damage to a, a, a building or a road or a bridge or something. And of course, people can be hurt. So um, it's nice if the floodplain can be bigger. And sometimes we achieve that by by doing earthwork. If we can, you know, sometimes the um, the option to do that isn't there because of uh, infrastructure or, or a building or 
um, ownership issues. You know, if, if uh, the city owns one side of a river and a private property owner owns the other side, you can only do so much. Um, so that's one consideration to take into account. And then, um, and I'm uh, Jennifer. I'm 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 mixing the two things. You asked me about considerations, and then there are also techniques. So I think I'm going to try to <laughs> yeah. hodgepodge them all together here. Um, let's see here. We also want to incorporate more wetlands because they're a natural part of the riparian zone. And when I talk about the riparian zone, that refers to the habitat that depends on the hydrology of the river. It might not be wet, um, but the, the, the roots of those um, plants that are growing in the riparian zone do need the hydrology, whether uh, you know direct contact with, with groundwater or capillary action or something. So, and you can see across the landscape, it's pretty easy to identify where the riparian zone is if it hasn't been modified, uh, just because you see more trees growing mm -hmm. next to the river, that's gonna be the riparian zone. So we wanna diversify habitat um, from that standpoint to uh, all, partly to, to make the river more natural and functioning, partly to dissipate energy that could otherwise take out infrastructure or buildings, and partly for the wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just to give them some habitat. So the riparian zone might be forested, it might be um, herbaceous wetland, but we, we uh, try to create as much diversity in there as we can. Um, it's, it's nice to have a, a curvature in the river uh, without having straightened channels, or you don't want too sharp of a curve either, because then you're setting up a, um, conditions for erosion. So that's where our fluvial geomorphologist is so important because um, uh, that person, in, in our case, he understands uh, the, the natural dynamics and, and the, the meanders in the most um, accommodating um, meanders of a river that, that can help contain that. Yeah, we so, like, humans yeah. like to try to force nature to be uh -huh. nice and neat and um, yeah. nature's Uniformity. not made to do that. <laughs> she, right. she likes to wander and cut new paths and, you know, confining exactly. it doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. And, and uh, I, I think, I think we're starting to understand following, you know, some bad floods or some bad fire seasons that, that we only have so much control. Yeah. <laughs> um, but with respect to other considerations um, with some of these river restoration projects here locally, uh, typically there are people nearby, you know, and, and we've already mentioned that, but there might be a recreation trail, there might be houses, there might be development or roads. And so we need to understand what those public or private uses are of, of the river and accommodate that. Um, and, and, um, that's where these these communications with the public or private property owners can become so important. And I really like that part of my job. I, I like understanding the um, the other concerns that that people might have as we approach a restoration project. Um, water rights can be an issue. Um, you know, there there are uh, long-standing water rights that we need to respect, and we can't modify at all. And sometimes, if you're building, uh, if, if we might say um, 
create a wetland habitat, we need to check the hydrology on that and make sure it's not going to impact downstream flows. So that can also be an issue. Yeah. Okay. And then um, back to some of the techniques, Jennifer, um, like I mentioned earlier, there might be some earthwork um, to possibly realign the river, possibly create a, a broader floodplain. And then certainly there's gonna be planting. We'll come in after um, much of the heavy construction is done and, and bring in trees and shrubs and herbaceous species. They come in little um, plugs, maybe with eight inches of root mass. We call it a 10 cubic inch plug um, and, and seed. We'll bring in seed. And there's another tool that we like to use um, called wetland sod mats. And those are for specialized situations where it's a little bit more stable, but it's a lot of plant biomass. Um, and and uh, it, it's almost, it's pretty ready to establish if it doesn't get um, disturbed. And they're five meters by one meter. And all we need to do is secure them to the soil. And if the hydrology is there, they establish quickly. Okay. And we've had some success with those too. So that's, um, a very quick way of describing how we bring in some of the vegetation. And I'm glad to talk to you more about that. Yeah, what's the importance of the vegetation in um, particular in, you know, water areas and flood mitigation and maybe filtering mm -hmm. the water and stuff like that? Oh, good. Yeah, so that's one reason right there is water quality. And then another reason is to stabilize the banks because the, the, the um, soil around water is not going to be stable if there's not vegetation there or rock. But, um, you know, we, we prefer to stabilize banks with vegetation where we can, um, uh, just because, you know, the riprap is, is hardened and it doesn't allow for much in the way of habitat opportunities. Um, so, uh, and then the ha the, another reason for vegetation is to pro provide wildlife habitat. Um, and I, I think broadly speaking, those are the primary reasons. And um, you know, the, the, the design is going to depend on the site, but like I mentioned earlier, we might have a patch that's wetland, um, and that means that it's going to be saturated most, if not all, of the time. So that would take a certain suite of species. And then we might have riparian forest, which is a little bit different than a wetland per se. And in that case, we would have canopy trees. Um, in, in Colorado, we use a lot of cottonwoods and, um, and peach leaf willows are the, probably the biggest trees we plant along um, rivers. But then we also bring in subcanopy trees um, in order to provide that understory and herbaceous species as well. So there's a lot of vertical structure. And um, so that's good for long-term hydrology in that it can kind of buffet some of the energy brought by high flows and reduces the chances of damage downstream. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also it's, um, it, it stabilizes the banks and provides uh, the habitat. It improves um, air quality in addition to water quality, uh, recreational opportunities. And, you know, so the, the, the reasons for planting like that are myriad. Oh, importantly, weed control. If you don't plant it with species that you want there, very That's likely non-native species are going to establish and then you have a whole different set of issues and a different restoration project at that point. 
Yeah. Nature doesn't like bare earth, so she'll, <laughs> she'll <laughs> right. put something there, whether you want to, right. what you want or not. <laughs> That's right. So we, we try to kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, import our, our desired community. And if we're lucky, we get to, you know, we always advise that the um, site managers watch it for a while because um, it, it's not uncommon for there to be weeds that happen in the first two or three years. And if they can get on top of those weeds um, quickly, then the chances for a long-term uh, sustainable native community are that much better. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Um, well, anything else about, I guess, the work that you do or the projects that you've done that we haven't touched on or? So, you know, um, I did, um, let me look at my notes really quickly. Um, sometimes we do bring in soil, uh, you know, if the soils are, are poor quality or low in organic matter or contaminated, we might need to bring in good quality soil. So that can be part of a restoration project. Um, uh, Wildlands Restoration Volunteers is a group that I volunteer for um, out of Boulder, and they like to use a, a um, feature called Z-Dyke structures, Z-E-E-D-Y-K-E, -E -E. <clears throat> and um, they use those uh, to slow down water flow. So it's not bringing in like a, a backhoe and, and changing the entire structure of a floodplain. They're simply putting it along a drainage to spread the water out. And passively over time, um, that can um, adjust local hydrology and create habitat for, for those localized species. Um, some of our post-fire work in Colorado, again, through Wildlands Restoration Volunteers, um, uh, has the, after a, a burn, we might go in and simply seed it and mulch it. And the, the, the prior to seeding, we rake the site first to make it, you know, a nice little seed bed. But that is real boots on the ground, you know, get your hands dirty, um, uh, volunteer-based efforts mm -hmm. that can save a landscape. And that's in Wildlands Restoration Volunteers, by the way, as long as I'm mentioning them, their, um, their motto is heal the land, build community. And that's exactly what um, Biohabitats also believes in. So as you said earlier, I'm lucky to be in this position. Yeah. So there's probably organizations like that all over the, the world, I would imagine, if people I would, want to get involved. I, I would hope so. And a good resource for that um, is the Society for Ecological Restoration, ser.org. They have a database of global restoration projects worldwide, and some of them are, um, you know, academically sponsored, some are government sponsored, but yeah, you can, it's a pretty good database of what efforts are happening around the planet. Nice. And we can always use more, of course, but. Yeah, look into that for Ireland, so. Okay, oh good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so are there ever any instances that you've encountered where restoration is just not possible, either it's too far gone or maybe there's other considerations like people aren't willing to do what needs to be done, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's a good question. Well, so if we're having the conversation about it in the first place, it, it probably implies that there's an interest in restoration. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think what's pretty normal is that you can't, you know, there, you have to draw the line somewhere. 
And so an example I mentioned earlier is um, that the, the, the opportunity for restoration might be the left bank of the river, whereas you can't do anything on the right bank. So, you know, and, and you can still do good work on the left bank, but it's, it's like, yeah, you just have to accept those limitations. Um, and then another, um, you know, I think universal to all of our projects is you do have a defined project area and you're gonna be working inside the boundaries of that project area, but that doesn't mean that the, the perimeter doesn't exist. And so part of our planning always takes into account um, the, the external stressors that will continue um, after the restoration project is done. You know, these restored sites are always going to be under some degree of stress, whether it's climate or, um, you know, human stress, traffic, pollution, weeds, um, you know, maybe um, nuisance wildlife or whatever. And so we try to <clears throat> project what those stressors might be and, you know, will not accommodate, but um, control for that as best as we can. And one of the tools um, that, that uh, I, I think one of the themes that we always use to try to make a site most sustainable and stable over the long term is diversity. So I mentioned like the vertical diversity of the riparian zone, but biodiversity is important too. And by that, I mean, um, well, you know, biodiversity can cover lots of different concepts, but structural diversity is one, species diversity is another, community diversity. So not just grassland, but grassland and some wetland if you can, if the hydrology is there. Um, and maybe we can mix in some, some shrubland and forest too. So, um, you know, the more diversity you have, <clears throat> the more um, able a site tends to be to, to handle stressors because it just has more um, tools tool in, in internal tools and in, in, internal capabilities yeah just yeah anytime in nature i think that that's always the case right. more is better trying to do a monoculture or a you know one size fits all thing doesn't right exactly <laughs> exactly so, uh, you know i have a question about that like no, knowing what we know now that certain things don't work you know that narrowing a river within an inch of its life it is not ideal for flood control and that fire suppression is bad in certain cases. Um, are people doing better? Are they, you know, adopting new techniques when they're designing or developing around these areas? I would hope. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would, I would think the answer is yes. Like right now we're, um, uh, we're, we're more conscious of the fact that you shouldn't build a road um, 20 feet away from a river, you know, not a good idea. And, and, and with some of our repair work that we've done in the front range, the, the, the roads that were damaged, you know, the, the rebuilt road might give a little bit more space, um, between the, the road alignment and the river alignment. Um, some, uh, you know, there's so much area that's already developed that the the restoration is is um i hate to call it a retrofit but um 
you know, the, the, the new development is getting more and more limited. I guess I'll put it that way. And and the example in South San Francisco I offered, I, I think that's a really great example of, of yes. You know, here's an area that is undergoing development and um, uh, we know that we have an opportunity to balance um, residential and community needs with some habitat opportunities, and and it's it's um, very responsibly um, approached. And similar with a, a site in Utah that I'm working on, with you know, yes, they're they're building buildings, but they're sustainably certified with the lead platinum, and instead of having a highly irrigated uh, greenscape around it, they are restoring open space. <clears throat> to reflect the native heritage of the site. So, um, um, I, I, yeah, I, I think that is the trend. And I'm, I'm not getting the cross-section of developers, um, but, but I'm, I'm seeing that, that mindset. Yeah, you would just like to think if you're having to go back and fix things that were done wrong, that hopefully people aren't still doing them that way. But you know, uh -huh. human nature uh -huh. isn't always as logical. <laughs> yeah, there, there are different drivers out there for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess on a related note, you know, we've talked about a lot of things that if you're a developer or you're, you own land that you can do um, to kind of, you know, make it function better or restore it. But if you're an average person, is there anything that we can do as we're going through our lives to maybe help prevent the need for this restoration or just, you know, make sure we're not making it worse? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I, I So one cool example, and this is not the green life hat question, is it, Jennifer? No, no, no. <laughs> well, um, I think it starts with education, and, and that needs to be self-motivated. Mm -hmm. But um, it's what's fresh on my mind is yesterday I took my students out to the urban farm in Denver and it's the urban farm.org fabulous place um, that is working with um, uh, youth that, that um, need this outlet as well as contributing food to the community. Last year, they contributed 11,000 pounds of, of uh, vegetables that they grew on site and, and, um, so they, the reason I bring this up is um, they have a prairie dog problem. And the reason they have a prairie dog problem is because the prairie dogs have been pushed out of their habitat from a nearby housing development. And um, so in the, the, the residents of the housing development are um, charmed by the prairie dogs and don't want them to be relocated or otherwise controlled. <laughs> and the irony is that it, you know, the, the prairie dogs wouldn't be so much of an issue if, if it weren't for the houses that are there. So um, I think we can always start with, with educating ourselves on the issues and how complicated they really are, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and how, how we might be contributing to that um, knowingly or unknowingly. Mm -hmm. um, and getting involved. I actually, you know what, I forgot your question. <laughs> <laughs> Just ways that the average person could maybe um, oh yeah yeah prevent or help you know prevent or help right yeah. okay so there are lots of opportunities to help as you and I spoke earlier volunteer groups are um, 
are active and I, you know, I'm speaking locally, of course, but uh, to your point, I, I hope that there are similar volunteer groups um, active in different places. And it, that's a matter of just looking around and, and, and asking for those opportunities. Now preventing, that's a different deal because, uh, you know, um, we average citizens don't have all of the opportunities to to degrade the landscape. We're just trying to function. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do we buy an electric car? You know, that doesn't really speak, that speaks more to sustainability than it does to, to restoration opportunities. Um, I, think, I think those of us that own um, a lot, we can we can um, manage our own properties in ways that keep it healthy, um, but as far as influencing the need for future restoration, that's a really interesting question, and I think it's more restricted to people that are planners yeah. and um, possibly the development um, sector of the economy. And I need to noodle on that a little bit more, but that's my, that's where I've arrived at this moment. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. just like with everything else, you know, our influence comes in how we vote and communicating yeah. with, with the people doing the, the work, what we want, you know, so maybe they'll take our thoughts into consideration. <laughs> well, you're exactly right on that. And I also want to, I don't want to miss the opportunity, Jennifer, to mention that we really need to listen to our um traditional populations and I'm thinking of the Native American uh, tribes that that um, grew up uh, you know they 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 understand the relationship with the land probably better than than uh, modern society does and I see an opportunity now to um, establish dialogue and keep listening about how we can most, respect our landscape and the natural heritage and living sustainably and um, respecting um, uh, all beings beyond beyond the human being. And so I, I think if, if I were to, you know, have one single piece of advice, it might be to start paying attention to native, the native voices. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because uh, indigenous, you know, voices are not often heard or their their um, advice is taken, but they're not included in the implementation process. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of appropriated. So it is important that we, um, you know, build those relationships and, and listen to the people who have been managing this land for right. hundreds of thousands of years. Right, and and we all have um, just just so much to learn from, from um, those voices. So I consider that an opportunity too. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, is there anything else we didn't get to that you want to talk about or any resources <laughs> you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I just wanted to mention, and this is this is shifting gears just a little bit because this folk, this conversation has been mostly on restoration, but <clears throat> I wanted to mention to your listeners that there is a global initiative to protect um, 30% of land and water globally by the year 2030. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I just think we all need to take on the responsibility of learning more about that and becoming advocates for it. So um, quick quick mention of that. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Ambitious, yeah. and I hope we can do it. <laughs> I hope we can too, yeah. 
It's very important. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, were there any other resources you would share with our yeah. listeners? I know you mentioned a few organizations and websites, but feel free to plug. I do have a few more if people want to learn more. So I would go to biohabitats.com. That's the company I work for, but we do have some nice um, uh, resources and um you know, it's not an overwhelming amount of information. It's a very navigable website. Um, if you want to dive in deeper, uh, I suggest the Society for Ecological Restoration, which I already mentioned, ser.org. They do have newsletters and webinars. And so that's if you're, if you're kind of turned on by this restoration idea and you want to learn even more about it and become more conversant, that's a great website. Um, the UN, this is the decade on restoration, 2021 to 2030 um, is, is the designated decade on restoration. And a good website for that is decadeonrestoration.org. Again, super easy to digest. And um, that, that's pretty good for now. There, I have, I yeah. have you know, oodles more, but that's, that's a good short list. Yeah, those are great. And we always um, put those in our show notes too. So if you are driving or yeah. <laughs> you can't can't quite remember, you can come back and look at that. Um, so I think that was all the questions that I had um, based on you know the topic at hand. I guess we will move on to our green life hacks. And okay. it sounds like you've got at least one planned for us. So I, I'm excited to hear yeah, um, your green I, life hack for our listeners. Yeah, exactly. And um, from from the ecologist standpoint. Um, here's an easy one. You don't have to do anything. It's not doing something. Don't tidy your yard in the fall. Don't rake leaves. Don't cut things back. Don't put anything in a bag. Don't even take it to the compost. Just let it sit in place. So the leaves are going to build the carbon stores in your soil and they're going to provide little micro habitats for little micro animals. So just leave them where they are. It's good. Um, and then, oh, also, and anything standing, you know, even if it's uh, a sunflower or whatever, that is still habitat through the winter and birds perch on it. And, and there might be some seeds left over that they can eat from. Okay. So that's, that's my, not, if I had to choose one green life hack, that would be it. I have a couple more. Yeah, feel free to share if you'd like. Uh, I, okay. I love that one because I'm all about, you know, we do, we over cut our yards and over weed. Yeah. You know, we need to kind of just let nature do its thing. And I yeah. understand people live in cities and they have rules, but. <laughs> right, right. Um, the second one is composting. And it's, it takes a little bit of planning and a little bit of space, but it's darn interesting. Once you start turning your compost pile, you'll be an addict. Um, and then an, another fun one is is just buy a packet of wildflower seed and throw it out there and see what happens. Um, you know, the, uh, it's preferable if you can buy wildflower seed that's um, locally native, but the pollinators need the support. There's another whole um, uh, podcast for you, Jennifer, on pollinators. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but they they support pollinators. They're pretty to look at, and um, they're super easy. So I have three. That's my three. Okay. Well, thank you. And <laughs> the, the seeds can go out. I guess it's December. It's technically winter, but they could go out in the fall even sometimes, right? Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Fall or spring, so it doesn't have to be right at right. the beginning of spring. Yeah. That's true. And and. If you're going to throw them out in the fall, throw out a little extra because somebody's bound to eat them. 
So yeah, sharing with nature. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, I love yours. Thank you um, for sharing that. Um, mine this month isn't uh, really related directly to the topic, but um, I just finished a paper actually on the right to repair. So this is fresh on my mind. So my advice to folks is just to try to repair things if you can, rather than replace them. And um, I know that planned obsolescence makes that hard sometimes. And it's, you know, either uh, built to break down early or built to um, not update the software, or maybe you can't get the parts. But if you can repair something or make it last a little longer, please do and try to keep it, you know, in use in some way rather than disposing of it, even if it's recycling, because recycling is still ultimately should be one of the last steps before, you know, reuse and repair. So totally agree. <laughs> That's my life hack. <laughs> and with the holidays coming up, you know, a lot of times we can we can fix old things up and regift them. So that's a great way to keep them in cycle. That's true. But, Plus it makes us feel less helpless. Yes. Yeah. It's like empowering to fix something. I know. I, whenever I fix, even if it's just like a silly little thing, I'm like, I did that. Right. You know, I, I figured out how to make that work again, even if it's dumb. Go <laughs> so, me. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and that used to be the norm. It's it's crazy how fast that's changed in just, you know, a couple decades, but yeah, true. cheap resources will do that, I guess. I love it. <laughs> well, um, where can we find you online? Are, are you feel free to share your organization oh, yeah. or your personal site yes. if you, if you'd like. Yes. So, um, I have a LinkedIn page and you should just be able to find me with Susan Sherrod on LinkedIn and then biohabitats it's www.biohabitats.com and then also we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the huge all the things. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yep. Well, you can find me here on Sustainably Geeky, occasionally on one of our other shows on the channel Ethically or Marginally Geeky um and um the show itself of course, is on all of the sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, YouTube, and we are on pretty much every podcast channel you can find. So if you don't subscribe to us, please do and give us a five-star rating or a thumbs up or whatever they let you do and share us with your friends um, if you're so inclined. And then you can find me personally um, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. So if you have any topic suggestions or ideas, feel free to reach out either way and share those with us. Um, thank you again for being on and sharing your knowledge. This has been very fun and informative for me, and I'm excited to, to look more into some of the information you provided. So happy holidays. Yeah, you too. And thank you for listening, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network. 